0: The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and participants during this episode are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of the American College of Physicians, the editors of Annals of Internal Medicine, or the institutions that the speakers are affiliated with unless so identified. All relevant financial relationships have been mitigated. Information contained herein should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, or to view disclosures, visit go.annals.org slash on call.
1: There are these feelings of competing demands. You have high clinical duties and you have other obligations such as teaching, and it sometimes feels like those can get put up against each other and you're almost in an impossible place.
2: Impact of Clinical Demands on the Educational Mission in Hospital Medicine at 17 Academic Medical Centers, a Qualitative Analysis. Joining us on the podcast is the first author, Dr. Vishruti Patel, who's a pediatric resident physician at Phoenix Children's Hospital, and Dr. Marisha Burden, who's the senior author and professor of medicine at the University of Colorado School of Medicine and division head of the Division of Hospital Medicine. We hope that you enjoy this podcast. Thank you for joining us, uh, Vishruti and Marisha. You raise in your articles some very, very interesting questions about the balance of hospital medicine in academic medical centers. There are some places where people either do clinical work or do educational work. There are some places where they do a little bit of both. There's some people who want to do more educational work, and you sort of get into this in your study of trying to figure out what the stresses are. So maybe you could start out by defining the problem that stimulated you to do this qualitative analysis.
1: Certainly. Well, first, uh, thanks for having us, Bob. We're really grateful to get to spend this time with you. And I think the, the study really stemmed from a, a career's worth of experiences, so as both a, for, a frontline clinician and then eventually in a leadership role. And so my job today is very different than my job back in you know around 2006, where most of my job was on traditional, as we defined it in the paper, traditional teaching services, and then got to see that evolution as our hospital services were more and more in demand and then on the other end of that spectrum, in a leadership role, when you're recruiting in hospitalists who want to be academic hospitalists, and increasingly you know, they expect uh, to get to be on these more traditional teaching services, and there um, was a noticeable supply and demand problem just uh, based on my own experience. And then as a leader trying to figure out how do we solve this in a way that meets the group's needs, meets the individual's needs. And hopefully the learners' needs. And so I think the study came from years worth of seeing a shift over my career, and in kind of true form, we love to uh, use research to try to understand things and to, you know, hopefully use it to build best practices going forward. So that's kind of where it started.
2: Great. Okay. So now we have we have a problem. How did y'all approach it? So what are the what are the methods you could do to try to figure out what's going on?
3: So. We did semi-structured qualitative interviews with hospital medicine leaders. Um, This included division heads, section heads, division chiefs, um, various um, kind of leadership roles across the country kind of reached out to 17 uh, different interviewees um, and they were from different, 17 different academic medical centers across the country. Our really biggest thing was kind of looking at large academic medical centers. So our inclusion criteria were those academic medical centers with more than 200 beds. And ours um, kind of ranged anywhere from 215 to uh, 1300 beds. were kind of the uh, range of uh, academic medical centers that we had represented. And then the biggest thing was they had to be academic medical centers that were experiencing clinical growth. Um, And that was primarily, we defined that as any increase in total patients in the hospital medicine service, addition of hospitalist teams or um, addition of hospitalists to their groups over the last five years. And then we kind of did these interviews, um, really approaching them from kind of learning from their lived experiences and how those were uh, through those like different hospitals leaders and their groups and how they were approaching this problem that we're trying to address and um, kind of went from there with figuring out like coding and themes and kind of these and then got kind of the themes that we have in our studies that emerged from those um, uh, interviews.
2: So let's go over the. The themes first, and then I'm going to challenge the whole field of hospital medicine, which I've which I've done before, and I'll probably get in trouble for again. So theme one is disproportionate clinical growth and the resulting tension between the hospitalist, clinical, and educational missions. So what did you learn from that one?
1: I think from that first theme, what you see, um, and like I mentioned a little bit before, is that Uh, the participants, their leaders, they noticed um, in their group and what they had experienced is that there's a mismatch in supply and demand for this traditional teaching, which is uh, heavily sought after often. There are these feelings of competing demands. You have high clinical duties and you have other obligations such as teaching. And it sometimes feels like those can get put up against each other and you're almost in an impossible place. And I think the lovely thing though is that Clinical growth, while it can be a threat, was also seen as an opportunity and a, a, a potential for innovation and even a way to uh, attract learners onto certain services. So if, for example, if you build a new uh, service that the residency is interested in, it could actually increase your teaching opportunities. And so those were kind of the three um, sub themes in that overarching, you know, disproportionate uh, clinical growth resulting in the tension with the, the two entities, clinical and education.
2: Let's define the traditional teaching that apparently everybody wants to do.
3: So traditional teaching, uh, we had the definition was um, our typical kind of resident, medical student attending um, types of teaching groups or teams uh, where our teaching, um, traditional teaching services that we kind of, the
0: definition.
2: As part of this, what I understand you're finding is that The hospitals are being asked to take care of more and more patients, and what I've seen around the country is more and more people say, well, we'll we'll let the hospitals take care of the patients, and we'll consult. Is that what's happening at your places? Okay, so that means you need more hospitalists, and at the same time, the teaching, the classic teaching doesn't seem to be growing that much. Is that correct? Okay. So you have increased supply of hospitalists, a demand that can't be met because you don't have an increased supply of teaching positions.
1: Right. Yeah. So I, I think what people feel, at least in our study, was that they you know, all kind of met criteria for this increased clinical growth. The residency programs in general are not keeping pace with that growth because they're not growing as fast. And therefore, those very, we'll call it in quotes, traditional opportunities, um, you know, are increasingly hard to come by. Uh, And I think previous ways of, you know, sharing those opportunities at some point, you know, sharing it equally, it gets diluted out. And so we saw that in some of our findings. And so, um, you know, in other uh, in some of our other results, you start to see how these groups started to adapt to those changes. And so. Um, you know, the residency programs, those types of programs were not keeping up with uh, the pace of the clinical growth, so resulting in the mismatch.
2: So uh, in theme number two, navigating the shifting landscape of high clinical demands and evolving educational opportunities, the first thing that I I wondered is the tension between teaching and productivity unique to hospitalists.
1: So I think... uh, Productivity, the issue of you know how much of it is the right amount is probably a global issue across healthcare, right? I mean, if you look at the the press and what you see in the media and just uh, in your day-to-day practice, um, it feels like there is a lot of work to be done. And sometimes not enough people to do it. And then you add in these other duties, like, hey, there's uh, students and trainees who also need to be taught and you need to do these other clinical care duties. It makes it hard to do both well, is what we heard.
2: Uh, And then my wording might get me in trouble, but how much of the clinical growth comes from abdication from other services?
1: I think it's a fair question and uh and what I've seen over my career is I, I think institutions organizations subspecialties I think realize the the powerful partnership that hospitalists and those specialties can have and so yes some patients that maybe perhaps in the past didn't used to come to us do now and whether that's through you know consults uh, or being primary I think that has definitely generated some increased business, which I think um, I think highlights you know where the field has gone and is exciting in some ways I think. And then I think there are hospitals who are building towers and new buildings and you know so there's that growth as well. And so you see the major academic medical centers even expanding their own footprint. so it's no longer just at that um, you know main campus there's you know like 10 other hospitals that uh, hospitals may also be at. So I think we've been expanded where we go.
2: And in the interviews with the 17 academic medical centers, was that a common theme that, I know hospitals programs that cover the main hospital and then they cover about three or four other hospitals and other places where the hospitals just cover that one particular hospital. Uh, What did you find in those, uh, from how much diversity between the 17 academic centers?
3: So as far as the interviews, I, yeah, I was part of a lot of those interviews. And I said every um, person I talked to, there is a lot of diversity. They have their own culture. They have their own kind of backgrounds of what their institution values and um, kind of where um, historically they've been. So um, I think in terms of how they approach you know, this kind of problem that we're talking about was very diverse and, and but also is kind of, it comes to get to the idea that they've all kind of done this thing where they're kind of having these um, innovative ideas and like solutions according to their own um, hospital demands that they're experiencing. And I think every program could learn from each other in a way too.
2: Okay, and then the last question on this issue is there, two entities uh that could be looking at this in different ways there's the teaching program and then there's the hospitalist program and the teaching program program wants the most experienced uh, most enthusiastic teachers and wants to be sure that they get the best to teach their residents that that know how to work with residents etc the hospitalists are recruiting people and they all want to do it, whether whether they're one of the best or not. Did you have any discussions about that? And 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 is that a stress that I'm making up or is that a real stress?
1: I think one of the the key questions that came from the study is, like, how do you think about distributing a scarce resource such as teaching? Right. And should it go to the most experienced? Should there be merit based? Um, You know, there was lots of conversation around different strategies that organizations have utilized and you know I think there um, we think and some of the folks thought through this work that you know there's also probably value in diversity of educators and so thinking about how you um, get to experience that diversity as a a learner and and Vishruti probably has like a lot of great experiences that she could share in thinking about this and um, I think one thing in the field is you know we haven't historically had a lot of researchers um, and part of that may be because our trainees are not exposed to researchers often on the wards. And so they don't know that that's like a possibility for a career. And so I think it's you want the best experience, the most experience, and uh, a diverse array of people who get to share their different areas of expertise And so I I think it's a a challenging conundrum on how to best divvy up these opportunities so that all parties really win. You know, you want your hospitals to have the opportunity to teach. You want your learners to have the best opportunities as well to learn. And so it's trying to figure out how do you get um, the right people to where um, they're really going to thrive in the best way possible, recognizing I think we all have different interests and there's probably a lot of opportunities within that.
2: I guess the follow-up to that is whether... Some people who try being on the teaching service find out, number one, it's not what they thought it was, or number two, that the teaching service doesn't really want them because the teaching service is, is gets to pick from a large array of hospitalists, and we're all not the same level of teachers. There, there's a major level of teachers. And I know over the years, we've had to invite some people not to have that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Did, yeah. did that come across in any of the conversations?
1: It, so we didn't have like, here's what you must do going forward. Like there was no best answer to this uh, question, but two fundamental things I think did come up. You have to have a process for determining it and it has to be transparent so that people at least know what's the path to get to be on the teaching team. Uh, and, you know, each organization had uh, different approaches, but those were kind of the two fundamental things to keep in mind process that is actually transparent.
2: Do you have any other ideas on these last couple of things?
3: Yeah, I think like what uh, Dr. Burden's saying here, a lot of it with uh, the recruitment, I think, you know, if I think of myself, I'm like a trainee right now. And like in a few years, if I'm going to be applying for, especially with my interest in hospital medicine, like I am going to be, I I do want to (laughs) teach. So it makes me think like how, how, you know, how likely is it that I'm going to get something like that? And I think a lot of the, um, Interviewers that we were talking to um, were saying like you know sometimes they just are only looking for people who only want to do clinical because that's what their organization or their group needs right now, and I think um, and then even if they are like what Doctor Burns saying with being transparent, sometimes it takes several years before they're you know a new um, attending or new um, kind of member of their group is offered any like uh, teaching roles. So I think like the it raises a also this idea of like how do you keep those people people kind of satisfied with their jobs in that time um, and that they have like fulfilling jobs in those like a year or two when they're not maybe able to teach.
2: Well, that, that really leads into uh, the third theme, which is reimagining the role and identity of an academic hospitalist. And to say someone's an academic hospitalist uh, is like saying someone's a cardiologist. Well, there are a lot of different brands of cardiology. There are a lot of different brands of academic hospitalists. they are researchers. There are people who are mostly in the teaching program. There are people who go into administration. And they are people who really like taking care of patients and spending all their time taking care of patients. And so the question is, as you're thinking about that and as people are recruiting, are they recruiting differently for those different types of hospitalists. And there's probably more types than I mentioned. I just, uh, I was just free associating. But how does that work uh, when you're talking to people about what they mean when they say academic hospitalist?
1: Yeah, I think that's like an important question. And I think there's beauty in the way that you can evolve as a hospitalist, right? There's so many different ways that you can go Um, And as you said, you could be that um, person who spends a lot of time on the teaching service and uh, spending a lot of time with trainees, or you could be the QI enthusiast and still have trainees in that arena or an administrator and teach people how to best run and lead groups. So that's what I love about our field is that there are so many different opportunities. I think the tricky part is, is that often trainees, um, you know, they, they see that academic hospitalists is mostly participating in those educational endeavors that are in that traditional kind of sector, so to speak. And so that's what they think is possible. And so I think the question for us as leaders and hospitals is how do we get that exposure out? Because I think if you don't see it, you don't know it's possible, right? You you don't know that you can be it. And so a lot of folks, I think, coming out of training, think about, you know, an academic hospitalist in a very, you know, uh, kind of um, certain way, because they don't get to see all the cool things. I think that is changing. And then I think it's fostering and helping Uh, build those interests, um, recognizing, you know, we need all sorts of hospitals. We need excellent clinicians who want to just focus in on that. Like I love recruiting those people. I also love recruiting people who want to spend a lot of time with a variety of learners and the researchers and the future administrators. Those are all valuable people, I think, to our groups um, and bring a lot of um, experience in a lot of different ways. But when you're first starting out, you don't know quite what you want to do. And so when you're uh, trying to recruit people, um, just as Vishruti mentioned, a lot of folks really want that teaching time up front. And, and it's a real hard sell, I think, to say, hey, you may have to, to wait a bit. And so trying to think about how you divvy these things up um, and still give um, junior faculty the opportunity because they also have to build those skills. So if you're not getting to teach, then how do you ultimately build it, I think is the other conundrum. So lots of questions, um, but I think lots of opportunities and just a, a beautiful field to get to practice in.
2: So I know at my institution, we have a, a, an elective for residents who think they might want to be hospitalists to just be the sidekick of a hospitalist for a month or mm-hmm. a couple of hospitals, as opposed to the traditional teaching program. That's certainly a teaching opportunity. Is that a common theme? And is that something that uh, people looking at jobs are interested in? or are they uh, are, are they really stuck on the ward attending?
3: Yeah, like as a resident right now, I would say, yes, primarily most of the time you have the most exposure with when you're on the wards with that hospital medicine attending as kind of that traditional model that we've been talking about. But I think it is like um, creating these other avenues of exposure, like whether it's like what you're saying, like an elective or um, another rotation or just like holding conferences or, you know, um, speakers that could talk about their careers, like as a hospital medicine uh, physician and what, how how they kind of made their own path and created educational opportunities for themselves. I think it's important because I do think there's an inherent bias in a lot of trainees that this is kind of what a hospitalist shop looks like, but I don't think that's true (laughs) after talking to a lot of the people that we did in this interviews.
2: (laughs) So let's finish with uh, the the old saying when you've seen one hospitals program, you've seen one hospice program, that's uh, that's almost a trope. But given that, and given all the people you talked to and all the interviews that you you reviewed and you understand much more about this field than uh, I could possibly imagine, what commonalities are there, and what should residents and hospitals take away from? the findings of this study?
1: So yes, once you've seen one program, maybe you've seen one, we did talk to 17. And so I think that the commonalities that we saw were just the, I think everybody values all the many different mission areas that you have in an academic medical center. It's just increasingly challenging. You know, I think with the, the busyness factor of the clinical work, it's hard. The patients are increasingly sick and complicated. And then uh, there are a lot of trainees who want to get on hospital services. So we consistently saw across those sites um, the, the mismatch in supply and demand. And so that that challenge was pretty pervasive uh, across each of the, the sites. I think the other neat thing, though, is that in true form of a, a hospitalist, I think we're adapting uh, to these growing challenges and, and seeing the clinical demands as both opportunities and then recognizing that we also have to address the challenges that we face. And that is through thinking about how do you distribute the teaching in a thoughtful and transparent way. And um, the other thing we saw is there's so many cool programs that are getting built. So you can be on kind of niche services such as like addiction medicine or procedure service. So it's not just your general medicine service where you might have trainees on. And so trainees are really everywhere uh, on our services and then innovations in fellowship training. So there was a lot of talk around advanced practice providers and uh, APP fellowships and that people really loved those opportunities as well. And then I think uh, lastly is, um, you know, there's a lot of opportunity in our field to really develop in lots of different ways. And um, our groups that we chatted with are doing such a, a thoughtful approach to really developing people and recognizing that there's no just one, you know, one single path forward. There's so many different ways that you can go. And I, I think that just makes the field really lovely.
2: Ms. Rudy, you did a lot of work on this. Do you, what, <laughs> do you have any other thoughts to add?
1: Yeah, I would say,
3: I think, like, really coming from, like, a resident and trainee, I think the biggest thing, like, when we are talking about redefining, like, the role and identity of academic hospitalists, I think it starts from exposure in the, like, our new trainees. Like, I think they need to be exposed to more of, like, hey, there are more career options and ways that you can make a hospital medicine career than just that traditional model. And that, you know, that continue to kind of look into more of those options and not just kind of be, hey, this is the thing I'm seeing the most and that's the only option available. And I think like getting more mentorship, more opportunities uh, with um, people in this field to kind of see where, how they've diversified their career is going to be important.
2: Well, thank you both very much for joining us on the podcast. Uh, it's been a most interesting conversation for me and uh I hope this uh, conversation uh, helps residents and hospitalists uh, think more deeply about this issue.
1: Thanks for having us. Thank you.
2: Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. The field of academic hospital medicine is quite diverse. At many places, the assumption when one looks for a job in academic hospital medicine is that they will be a ward attending. However, the imbalance between the number of months available for ward attending and the number of new hospitalists leads to the issues that we discussed on this podcast. There will be a constant stress between direct patient care and teaching in the field of hospital medicine, not to mention other responsibilities they have, administrative and other side academic uh, concerns. The diversity of hospitals and hospitalist programs makes developing one standard difficult. However, the enthusiasm and the variety that is discussed in this article and in this podcast leads to great hope for the future for academic hospitalists. Thank you for listening to our podcast.
0: Information contained herein should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, or to view disclosures, visit go.annals.org slash oncall.